0: First of all, I want you to see in chapter 11 that there is a remnant that remains. Paul asks an opening question. In the light of his previous arguments in chapter 9 and chapter 10, could it be concluded by someone that perhaps God has cast away his people? Chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, hath God cast away his people? The answer here is a resounding no. And he begins to use three illustrations to show the fact that God never cast away his people. And the first one is his own testimony. He says, I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, his own personal witness to how God has Saved him a Jew? If God has discarded Israel, Paul argues, how then could a Jew like me ever be saved? The second illustration is God's tenderness. It's a theological matter. These are God's people whom he foreknew. They were the objects of his grace, his predestining love. And then he turns to an Old Testament character, to Elijah. He turns to biblical history to further his argument. He's already said there's a remnant that remains. He has told how he represents that in his own life. He has reminded us of the tenderness of God towards his people. And now he reminds us of Elijah's troubles. Remember? Elijah had encountered the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and he had seen God being victorious. For the prophets of the false god had whipped themselves and had cut themselves and had praised and shouted and danced and sung and performed all sorts of great gyrations around their altar in order to try and call down from heaven the fire of Baal. While Elijah mocked him and said, call louder. Perhaps he's sleeping. Perhaps he's away somewhere. Surely he is a God. Surely he will hear you. But nothing happened. Elijah, having instructed that the sacrifice be drenched in water, prayers unto the Lord and the fire falls and the sacrifice on the altar is consumed. And in order to escape from the wrath of the king and of Jezebel the queen, he runs. And sitting beside a river somewhere in the midst of nowhere, he says, Lord, they have killed thy prophets. Verse 3. They have digged down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. And yet God reminds him in verse 4, I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. The point that Paul is illustrating concisely is already stated for us in verse 5. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant. There are people within the Jewish nation who are his. If someone should say, I only, I am left, then remember that God has his faithful remnant of believers. That's Paul's masterly thesis. That there is a remnant of Israel. But look at how he describes them. It is a remnant according to the election of grace. There we have to distinguish very carefully. Because when we think of the Jewish people of today, what are we thinking of? The modern Jewish religion is based on Pharisaism. Remember that Pharisaism was a false religion. It wasn't part of the Old Testament covenant. Pharisaism, it was based on salvation by works, by attempting to keep the law, by hedging the law so that you would not break it. And yet, of course, we learn in God's word that none of us can keep the law. for We're all sinners. So Paul makes a very great distinction here in verse 5. Those that are the remnant of Israel are not those who are keeping the law through their works, but those who are according to the election of grace. In fact, he describes this even further in verse 6. He says, And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Those who are trying to please God in the Jewish nation by their works, they, they are not the ones who are part of that remnant. It is those who are of the election of grace. For if it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. is no more grace. Throughout Old Testament, there were people who called themselves Israel. And some of them were Baal worshippers. And some of them were unfaithful. And many of them followed after other gods. And many of them lived unworthy lives. And many of them stoned the prophets and killed the men of God. And put their trust in earthly religion. And despised the Lord and his law and rejected his ways. Were these people the true Israel? Were these the true inheritors of Abraham's promise? Were the Jews who we look at today in the nation of Israel, are they the true inheritors of Abraham's promise? The answer, according to Paul here, is no. God's covenant is with those who are his through grace. Those who would obey him as a response to his love, not with disobedient, gain-saying people, as he talks about in Romans chapter 10. And verse 21. Let's just turn back a wee bit. To Romans chapter 9. And verse 6. Just to see how Paul is continuing this same theme. Right throughout these verses. Romans chapter 9 and verse 6. Paul says. Not as though the word of God hath taken none of fact. For they are not all Israel. Which are of Israel. Just because a man Has. Been initiated into the Jewish faith, or brought into a religion, or has years of thousands of years of history behind him, none of that makes you an inheritor of Abraham's promise. Chapter 9, verse 7. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children. We looked at that before. So Paul is constantly saying to these people, Now look. Just because you claim to be a Jew does not actually make you part of God's Israel. Romans 10 and verse 21. To Israel he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Despite the fact that Paul has clearly told us that not everybody who called themselves Israel actually was a member of God's true Israel. The important point is that Paul is making here is that there has always been a remnant of faithful believers in Israel. It was so in the Old Testament. It was so in Paul's day. He himself was an example. It even is so today. Just because Israel has rejected God, that does not mean that God has rejected his people. A believing remnant believe until this day. Now, who are this remnant? Well, verse 6 and 7 gives us the clue. The remnant is the elect of Israel, those who have not sought salvation and works of righteousness, but have obtained it through grace. Just the same for us. Just the same as Paul has been saying in chapter 10. There only is one people of God. One true Israel. And they come, whether Jew or Gentile, through Christ and his death alone. Paul asks a second question in verse 7. He says, what then? What then? How does this all apply? What does all this mean? This idea that there's a remnant, that Jewish people have come to God through grace. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament alike, they are saved by faith and not by works. Paul asks the second question, how does all this apply? What then? What about it all? What about my day and his day? It forces him to a hard conclusion. And the conclusion is that the righteousness that his people were so earnestly seeking after, they didn't find. What then? Verse 7. Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for. Now who has obtained it? The elect. The elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded, hardened against the gospel. So while the Jews have been hardened, God has not turned his back on them. There's always been a remnant. But that rejection, if uh, we like to put it that way, is therefore reversible. Just because they rejected the Savior, that does not mean that they cannot be saved. God has a purpose in Israel's failure. Look at verse 11. For in chapter 11 and verse 11, Paul says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles. Now, Paul has another threefold argument here, just like he had after his last question. Through Israel's fall, salvation is came to the Gentiles. It was necessary in God's great plan of redemption, somewhere in the hidden counsel of God, for his chosen people of that day to stumble and fall and reject the Messiah so that the Gentile nations could be brought within God's covenant. I say that, Have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather, through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles. This next wee phrase is interesting. For to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? A couple of weeks ago, I was listening to an internet sermon by one of the televangelists. One of these people who believe that God wants you rich. God has ordained that you should have a private jet. If you haven't got one yet, you should go out and declare it and proclaim it and you will get it. And you'll have a Mercedes as well. Or you might go for something better than a Mercedes. Maybe a Rolls Royce or something. Just declare it. Just, Just name it and claim it. And it'll be yours. Because God wants you rich. And then he made the argument. Now why does God want you rich? Here's why. To make the Jews jealous. Because they want to be rich too. Did you ever hear such a bit of scripture twisting in all your life? and a bit of racial uh, discrimination as well, stereotyping. We have been greatly blessed by God in salvation. And one of the purposes of that is that God would, through our blessing, be the restoration of salvation to the nation that ought to have blessed other nations. Israel will fulfill her purpose in God's plan. 11 and verse 15, and we read it there. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? So, Paul has a portrayal here of Israel's future. He's saying to us here, that the rejection of the Savior is not necessarily final. Because sin can be forgiven. And all of us who have at some stage rejected the Savior in our lives can come and repent of that and be forgiven. And Paul has a portrayal, two more illustrations to explain about how he will bring his people together at the last day. Here it is. Verse 16. A loaf of bread. For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. The Jews, when they would have Baked a loaf would have offered a piece of every loaf to the Lord as the first fruits of the bread. And if the first fruits of the bread were holy, then all of the loaf was holy, since it was made from the same dough. So it is with Israel. The fruits of Israel were holy, godly men. and The whole lump has a potential for that holiness. Here's what Paul says. If the the, First fruit be holy, the lump is also holy, if the root be holy, so are the branches. He's talking about an olive tree. So his first illustration is a loaf. His second illustration is a tree, an olive tree. An olive tree is an olive tree because it has olive tree roots. Israel is an olive tree, and the branches are diseased and withered, and the pruner has come and has cut the branches off it, but the roots remain with the potential to produce good fruit. The There are godly roots. So Paul introduces a new factor. This pruner who came and took away the old dead uh, branches off the olive tree has gone to a wild olive tree and has taken the branches off that and has grafted them onto the good olive tree. A wild olive tree has been engrafted onto the tree. The Gentiles who are that wild olive tree have been taken and engrafted into Israel. You often hear Arminians pointing the finger and saying, we don't believe in your replacement theology. Who ever talked about replacement theology? The church has not replaced Israel. The church has part of Israel. It is grafted into the root. It is drawing its strength from the root and it is growing as part of the tree. That's why we should never despise the Jews or look down upon them. There's no room for anti-Semitic sentiments and attitudes among believers. Israel is the main tree, not the other way around. So Paul says in verse 17, And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and with them, partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. There it is. Don't be saying that you're better than them. But if you boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say them, The branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. They were. Because of unbelief they were broken off. And thy standest by faith be not high minded but fear. Verse 21. For if God spared not the natural branches. Take heed lest he also spare not thee. Good news for Jewish believers. Is it is much easier to engraft back natural branches of the same species than to engraft branches from a different species? Paul makes this argument as well in verse 24. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature and wert grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree how much more shall those which, be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. Paul's working towards the conclusion of his thesis. Israel's like a tree. God's people are like a tree, described here. There are some natural branches. There are some branches that were taken from a wild tree, and have been engrafted into the cultivated tree. And perhaps then there are some re-engrafted branches. But one day, God will look at the whole tree. And the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So here, in verse 25, we see the conclusion of the matter. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles be coming. and so all Israel shall be saved. Listen to the dispensationalists when they tell you that that means that there will be a day when every Jew will suddenly turn to Christ. When all Israel shall be saved, it is when God shall see that the tree is complete. The grafted branches, the natural branches of the Old Testament, the re-engrafted branches of those Jews who have come to Christ through Jesus the Messiah, And the fullness of the Gentiles are gathered in. Only God knows what that number of the fullness of the Gentiles will be. So huge a number that we could never count it. But they are in. And on that day, God's elect people, his one elect people, his Israel, the inheritors of Abraham's promises, his church, his bride will be complete and he will come and he will take them home. For this, verse 27, is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. In verse 29, he reminds us that the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. He will not forsake us, and he will not forsake his people, but he has only ever had one people, those who are by election and by grace the inheritors of the promises of Abraham, his true church, his true Israel, and one day when that church is complete, they will reign in heaven with Him forever. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.